Thank you for tuning into the Apostolic Pentecostal Church podcast. You are currently listening to one of our iGrow series lessons. If you're in the Bloomington, Illinois area and want to sit in person, feel free to join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. for Bible study and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for worship in the Word. Can't make it in person? No big deal. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and search Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Either way, we'd love to fellowship and worship with you. We hope to see you. So like I said, we're going to talk about John the Apostle. Traveled a long way to get here, so glad we could could make it and glad my wife could travel with me. Um, She made the long journey from a quarter mile away. Um, But... So, uh, and, and Brother Melder, he went even further out of his way, uh, maybe a, a, another 10 feet. But, so, but I was really excited, actually, when, when uh, Pastor uh, asked me to teach on John. Um, it, uh, we were kind of talking about different, uh, we've, of course, we've been talking about different individuals in the Bible that people have been teaching on. And I was like, well, John, there's a lot of stuff. And then I went... But with John, there's a lot of stuff, so I'm not going to try to cover everything, but start out talking a little bit um, about John, the, uh, who John was. John, uh, and we're talking, of course, John the Apostle. Don't confuse him with John the Baptist or uh, John your neighbor or anything like that. <clears throat> but John the Apostle lived from around 6 A.D. to around 100 A.D. And uh, he's often called the Apostle of Love. He was a fisherman. Uh, He was the son of Zebedee and Salome, uh, and he was the brother of James. And some, a lot of folks believe that uh, Salome was actually the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would make John the cousin of Jesus. And uh, it's believed that John first followed John the Baptist, where he witnessed the baptism of Jesus and left to follow him. Uh, John was part of uh, Jesus' inner circle, if you will. Right, he with James and Peter. He and James and Peter were were the only ones present for certain events. They they were the only ones that witnessed the raising up of the da- daughter of Jairus. Uh, they witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were the three that were in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed and was arrested. Jesus sent only John and Peter into the city to uh, make preparation for the final Passover meal. Uh, John and James were nicknamed Sons of Thunder by Jesus. Uh, because they were uh, so competitive and impulsive, right? They wanted to call fire down on, a, on, a, on this Samaritan town because they refused them. Uh, they re- rebuked a man that wouldn't receive him. And they argued about who was the greatest among the disciples. And, and they even asked to be elevated above everybody else, right? So uh, now you think about the things that John witnessed, Okay, because he was kind of the first one, one of the first one, maybe the first one to follow Jesus, and he was the last one. John, John witnessed the baptism of Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus, the teaching, the preaching of Jesus, the transfiguration, the Last Supper, the prayer of Jesus uh, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. He saw the torture and the death on the cross. He saw the empty tomb. He witnessed the resurrected Jesus. He saw the outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the upper room. He saw Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, right? He saw the church, the birth of the church, the growth of the church, the Gentiles being added into the church. He saw the lame beggar being healed outside the temple, right? 
uh, he even saw a vision of the end times. So, so what a life. What, a, what an amount of knowledge this, this man had, right? And, and he, 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 he called himself the one whom Jesus loved. And that was probably out of humility. In, in, in his gospel, he never uses his own name. Um, but he, he loved Jesus right back. And he knew pain of love, right? Because he was the only one that, w- that remained at the cross when everybody else scattered and ran away. And then he took in Mary, the mother of Jesus, after his death. He knew the commitment that love takes. He, he was in prison multiple times for the sake of the gospel. And John knew loss. His brother, James, was the first apostle to be martyred. He outlived all of his peers. He let all the other apostles. Uh, he outlived them. He's the only one that died of natural causes. And John's writings were actually written 60 years after the day of Pentecost. Uh, we don't know what order. I, 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 we can only speculate. But he wrote these 30 years after all the others had been martyred. He was the last apostle of the first century. And by the time he writes, John has seen a lot of things come and go already in the church. And think about it. This, this, the church is 60 years old now. How much have we seen come and go in, in the life of this church? You know, however long you've been in it. Right? 60 years. Um, and, and that included uh, people coming and going and false teachers and false doctrines trying to make their way in. So when he finally sits down to put pen to paper, the, the church was starting to drift away from truth. And they were trying to be inclusive and tolerant and lo- loving. Does this sound like anybody we've heard of in the church today, right? They were embracing false truth and people were developing their own versions of God. In particular, the church was being influenced by a group called the Gnostics, and I'm going to talk about them a little later. Um, the entirety of John's writings, obviously we couldn't cover, I couldn't cover that all in an hour. Um, I don't even think I can cover what I want to cover in an hour, but I'm going to attempt to. I want to focus tonight, though, our attention on the, the first epistle or letter that John wrote. John's, I, I really kind of think, I, this is my, again, I'm only speculating, but I think he wrote these letters, he wrote these three letters, with his, obviously, he already had the knowledge of the gospel, because that was what he lived. But I think he also had the, had the he was view, writing it with, the, with revelation in view. Because he, he writes this, this uh, letter to the church as a, as a correction of doctrinal error and false teaching that was invading the church and leading a lot to fall away. So I hope you brought your Bible, um, because and I hope, this is Bible study. You're supposed to have a, a Bible to study. Um, and I don't have a projector. I, I'm the only one that didn't get one. So, so you know, this is old school here. But I'm not, I'm not going to, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read all the scriptures. I'm going to sort of try to tell you where I am. So, so I'm asking you to kind of follow along. Um, I'm going to be I'm really kind of talking about how the King James talks about it. But you read any version you want. Um, I mean, don't read a crazy version. But, you know, some, something a little, a little close to the real uh, to the to the original writing, um, so, but I want to try to unpack this letter to help us understand. This is powerful. There's powerful lessons in here, and and I want us to understand what John was telling the believers to do and what he was warning against. Because I think it wasn't just relevant then; it's relevant today. So we're going to look at the first four verses of First John. All right? It says that was which, which was from the beginning. 
Right? John begins to echo, right? He starts right off echoing the truth that was revealed in Genesis 1.1 and in John 1.1 and John 1.14 that Jesus is the word of life. John witnessed God revealed in the flesh. Okay? He uses the word manifest. This is a key word that John used often to describe the dual nature of Jesus Christ. And it, another key word in this passage is fellowship. Right? He uses the word fellowship twice. Fellowship, he talks about fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Fellowship is greater than friendship. To have fellowship with God, we need to have fellowship with his church. And John clarifies his purpose of, his, of writing this letter so that the believers can be full of joy. So I'm going to go through the next, uh, John, uh, the first chapter, verses 5 through 10. He starts talking about light versus darkness, right? And light versus darkness are frequently used in the Bible. And light refers to God and righteousness. And righteousness, if you don't know, it means to be in right standing with God. And darkness refers to sin. John 3.19 says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 5 says, You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. And Ephesians 5a says, You were uh, sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And of course, Peter, 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. <clears throat> So we, we, John tells us here that we lie when we walk in darkness, but say we have fellowship with God. And the first thing our flesh wants to do when we sin is lie about it. Just like Adam in the garden, we, we want to cover it up. That's, our, that's, our, that's just our, our, our natural instinct, to cover it up. And eventually, we don't just lie to others about our sin, we begin to lie to ourselves. Paul wrote about the degradation of sin in Romans how it progressively leads to a reprobate mind. And that's somebody who can no longer distinguish right from wrong. So, so when you start going down the path of lies, that's where you end up. And we don't get there all in one step. What happens is that people who hide their sin start to believe that that little bit of sin that, that, they, that they allow, the one you keep around, that that's okay. That you got it all under control. Right? Adam could control his sin with fig leaves, right? or he tried to. And then the next step is that they lie to God. They make excuses, just like Adam. They make excuses for their sin. They look for loopholes in the Word of God. Right? You start looking for loopholes, you're probably headed down the wrong path. Well, what if... The, you start asking the what ifs, you're probably headed down the wrong track. Adam put the blame on Eve and eventually on God for what? For his own decision. And finally, John uh, says that those who walk in darkness become hypocritical. They love to walk around pointing out to others what's wrong with them, but they're blind to the, the sin that's in their own lives. So they start out telling a lie, but they end up living a lie. And as children of light, we need to be better than that. We're called to be better than that. If we tell the truth and live in the truth, the blood of Christ covers our sin. We don't need to cover up with flimsy excuses and lies. We have the blood of Christ. It covers it perfectly and permanently. We can have fellowship with God 
we can then have fellowship with God and with one another. And we're free from the bondage of shame and guilt and fear. And if we'll walk in the light, we get fellowship with God and we get fellowship with God's family. That's the church. And that's what brings joy. That's what brings the joy that John is trying to write to us about. If we walk in the light, in truth, okay, not being or pretending to be perfect, then we're made blameless in the sight of God. It's not like that we're guiltless or, we, or perfect, but it's not what we, our sin isn't held against us in the sight of God. We're made righteous. But if we say that we have no sin, if we try to say we're perfect, that we're not affected by sin, then we're lying to others, maybe lying to ourselves, and almost certainly lying to God. And our best weapon against sin, John tells us, is confession. Right? Confession is, you might want to write this one down, confession is more than just admitting to something. It means that we agree with God in what He says about it. You start doing that kind of confession, your heart's going to begin to change. So you could, because it's easy to say, God, I know I did it again. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Yep, and then you go do it again. But you start saying, God, I agree with you. I agree with the judgment you have against my sin. And it's going to start changing you. It means being, confession means to be honest with ourselves and with God. Now, John tells us here that God is faithful and just. He is just, right? He is just. It doesn't just mean fair, but he's just. His judgments are right. And that means God that has the authority. His, him being just means he has the authority to cleanse us of our sin, no matter how wrong we've been. Thank God for that. I mean, I ought to get a hallelujah right there because, you know, and you think about somebody, I was just talking to somebody today. Like they think they're so wrong that their sin was so bad that, you know, I'm like, well, you're the one that the blood of, doesn't, of Jesus doesn't cover. And I'm like, well, what about Nineveh? Look, look in Joe, read through Jonah. Nineveh was terrible. Yeah. Yet God forgave them. He had mercy on them. John is acknowledging in these verses that basically that saints sometimes sin. Right? You sometimes sin. I sometimes sin. Right? We are never going to be immune to sin. We don't lose the sin nature in our conversion. That's going to come later. But until then, we will sin sometimes. We should avoid it. Right? We shouldn't be like, well, I just sinned sometimes. We should avoid it. But we won't get it right all the time. And that sin is the enemy of our fellowship with God and with other believers. Moving into chapter 2, the first six uh, verses. Um, it starts with, My little children... John warned the church about the dangers of sin and uh, of deceiving ourselves about the sin in our lives. He warned, <clears throat> he warned uh, against sin, but reminds us that if we do sin, this is good news here. I mean, he's been kind of hard so far. But he reminds us if we do sin, we don't have to say stuck in shame and guilt because we have an advocate, right? A mediator, an intercessor, a helper in Jesus Christ. And more specifically, in the Holy Ghost. Okay? The word that John used here that is translated as advocate, which means something like, like, an, like a lawyer that defends you, that same word, paracletes, is also used by John in the 16th chapter of his gospel, where it's translated as comforter or helper. 
And in, in that chapter, it's specifically referring to the Holy Ghost. So our advocate, when we sin, when we mess up, is the Holy Ghost. Right? The spirit of, very Spirit of Christ living in us. That's why you need the Holy Ghost. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you don't have the advocate. So our proper response when we sin is not to wallow in it, but to confess it and to pray in the Holy Ghost. That's, all, that's it. Jesus is not just our advocate, but he's all, John reminds us that he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means the, an atoning sacrifice. Right? Just like the, whole, the high priest in the Old Testament tabernacle offered the blood of an animal at the mercy seat to temporarily, that, all that did was temporarily appease the wrath of God. Jesus, as our high priest, has offered his own blood to appease the wrath of God once, of, once and for all. And that's not just for the Jews, that's for the whole world, that's for all of us. So John's points that he's made so far are really, I think, are illustrated well in Jesus' parable of the publican and the Pharisee praying in the temple. And this is in Luke 18, uh, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Okay, does this sound like the people John is talking about? Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this, as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, he doesn't even want to get to the altar. He's so covered, mired in his shame and his repentance. He would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and maybe, I think what makes John's writing more powerful here is when you realize that, that, that he didn't just hear about Jesus paying the price for our sins, he witnessed it. He saw it. So how do you know that you know Jesus? John says we know him if we keep his commandments. You might want to write that one down. That's a key point. If you say you know Jesus, but don't keep his commandments, John says you're a liar. And, and it's very likely that John was being purposeful in his choice of the word no. Because the word no is gnosis in Greek. Okay, G-N-O-S-I-S. Remember that group I mentioned earlier, the Gnostics? They were plaguing the church in John's day. They thought you could live any way you want, Right? They denied the deity of Jesus. They did not believe that Jesus was God. And they embraced something they called enlightenment. And they followed persuasive people and pursued special knowledge as the way of salvation. Sound like anybody we, you hear today on YouTube. You've got to be careful who you listen to. There's a lot of people out there who say they got some special revelation. or special. You've got to be careful with these private revelations and stuff, right? We need to be very careful. John said, that if you know, John said if you know him and keep his word, then the love of God is perfected in you, and you can be sure that you know him. If you know Jesus, you'll walk like him, and you'll walk in obedience to him. Right? That word abiding that's used here, right? Uh, you see that in, I won't go through the whole thing, but in John 15, you know, Jesus used that, you know, abide in me and abide in the vine, right? It, Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote, Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Right? That's living in. Us living in Him and Him living in us. And a lot of modern Christians are now following the same path as the Gnostics back in the first century. 
They're, they're, they're forgetting or cutting out doctrine in favor of following charismatic personality. Somebody's exciting. They're, they're, they're uh, a wound-up preacher, and, they, and they, they follow people with some supposed special knowledge. But we don't follow people. We follow Jesus, and we follow his word. Amen? That ought to get an amen. Right? Okay, so we're moving into verse 17. Right? I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. John says that this is, uh, I'm going through 7 through 14 here. John says this is not a new commandment, but we are moving from the old written law to the living word of God. The commandment is of old, but if you live it, it will become new to you. Does that make sense? So, so remember that, that Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. What was that? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right Upon this hangs all the law and the prophets. Right? Everything is about that. You can't hate your brother. Nathan, you can't hate me. I love you, brother. I love you. But one who hates his... Because one who hates his brother is spiritually blind. Literally, you're spiritually blind because you can't possibly hope to see an invisible God if you hate your brother who you can see. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said, if I don't have love, then I am nothing. He didn't say I have nothing. I am nothing. And John writes to three groups here. He, says, he, said, he writes to little children, fathers, and young men. Notice that? What he's talking about here is New believers, the little children are the new believers, fathers are the elders, and the young men are the saints. And he has specific instructions for each one. <clears throat> but I'm going to move to verses, uh, 15, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, love not the world. Okay, When we abide in God, we love Him and love His people, but we hate the world. Now, that world doesn't mean the people in the world. It means we hate the world system. Okay? In John 12, Satan is called the prince of this world. And the system of this world is constantly warring against you spiritually. Worldliness is not just our activity, but it's our attitude. It can be your attitude. We have to turn away... This one convicted me, okay? This, this, I wrote this, and I'm, I'm convicted by it. We have to turn away from loving and being fascinated by the things of the world and turn our love toward God and His Word. TikTok videos, anybody? Right? We're fascinated. We're fascinated. I've caught myself watching, and I'm like, well, you know, I go through about 15 videos of garbage and all kinds of stuff that I really would rather not hear or see to see a cute puppy. It ain't worth it. <laughs> Well, the puppy was kind of worth it, but, but you get what I'm saying. Right? We have to be careful about what we let fascinate us. So the things of the world, what, that's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You've probably heard this before, but these are the same three temptations that were in Genesis 3 that, that Adam and Eve faced, and they lost. They're also, the, I don't have time to go through all the detail, that's a whole Bible study on its own, uh, but they're also the same three temptations that Jesus faced, and he won in Luke 4. We battle the lust of the flesh by submitting our bodies to the word of God. We battle the lust of the eyes by submitting our minds to the worship of God. And we battle the pride of life by submitting our spirit to the will of God. 
The things we lust after in the world are worthless. Anybody agree with that? You know, the pastor was talking about, you know, somebody that has had all, I think he was talking on Sunday um, about people, somebody that's had all this stuff of the world. I, that's my testimony. I, everything the world told you you needed to have to be happy. And I was empty. I was as empty as anybody out there. It's worthless. And it all went away in the blink of an eye. Everything that we look at, it lust after in the world is going to one day perish. But the word of God and the will of God, they have eternal rewards. They're going to last through eternity and they're going to bless through eternity. God's word will never pass away. And heaven's worship is going to continue forever. And the will of God never changes. Right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Moving down to chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. Starts off, little children. He keeps using that phrase, little children. It's a term he's saying, it's endearment, but he's talking to the most vulnerable ones in the church. John's the only writer in the Bible to use the word uh, antichrist. I'm going to have to speed up. (laughs) Um, Anti means against Christ or instead of Christ. Okay? Everything in the world in this world, lies to us either by opposing Christ or by replacing Christ in our lives. It tries to oppose or replace the truth. It tries to replace Jesus. It tries to replace His church. And the spirit of Antichrist has been at work since the Garden of Eden, even though the Antichrist has not yet come. There's already little Antichrists at work. And the spirit, this spirit of Antichrist is everywhere. It's in every worldly institution. And we shield ourselves from this by loving God. Right? We have to love His Word. We have to love His worship. And we have to love His will. And, don't skip this one, by loving His people. The Antichrist is called, elsewhere in the Bible, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one, and the beast. Sounds like a fun guy. Uh, <laughs> right? But he's going to look like a fun guy. We laugh at that, but he's going to look real good to people, right? Because John's proclamation of the Antichrist was a double fulfillment prophecy. It had fulfillment at the time, in the immediate time, but it's going to have fulfillment again in greater ways later. Matthew 24 and 24 says, For there shall, uh, Jesus was saying that there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Right? These deceptions will look so much like the truth, even believers are going to be deceived. And we all say it isn't going to be me, but be careful. Even before the person of Antichrist is revealed, this spirit is already present. And, and John was concerned about the believers that, are fool, that are, were fooled in his day and us that may be fooled in our day. And he's speaking here to apostolic believers that left the truth. Right? The lying spirit of Antichrist has this like appeal, right? It's a sinister, sneaky appeal. It says it makes no difference what you believe, right? We're just as long as you're sincere. And we're all going to go to the same place and everybody's going to make it to heaven. God loves everybody. So let's just love Jesus and forget about doctrine. That doesn't matter. Just love Jesus. You hearing that anywhere today? It lulls people to sleep and draws them away from the truth. Faith in a lie will cause eternal consequences. 
Falling away from truth, the truth is foretold in the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3 talks about a falling away first before the rapture. Do you think I'm just not going to get fooled? I'm just going to be raptured out here. Be careful. John is warning here. And, and, and these people are a lot closer <laughs> to, the, to the original church than we are. So with all these lying spirits of Antichrist that, that have lined up against the church, how, how are we supposed to make it? Well, John tells us here in verses 20 and 21 that we need to, basically he's saying we need to stay prayed up in the Holy Ghost. Unction. Right? Unction. Right? And he's careful, he's specific in using that word too because that's what the Gnostics sought after. They thought they had a special unction. They, they left the people in John's, they left the church and claimed knowledge. They right the, the Gnostics, they wanted knowledge and special unction. But John said, because we know the truth, we can recognize the lie. Right? We, really, we have to really know Jesus and we have to really know his word. I teach Bible studies up in that jail and I, I tell those guys that every time. I tell them at the food pantry, don't just listen to me. It doesn't matter what I say. You've got to study the word for yourself. You need to know the truth. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what I believe to be the truth. But you need to know the truth. God's going to ask you, why didn't you know for yourself? <clears throat> John showed the oneness of God in his gospel. In fact, I've heard his, that some say his gospel is the oneness gospel. It really reveals the, the oneness. And in this letter, the Father and the Son are one. It is antichrist to deny the oneness of God. I'm going to quote John, John 14, 9. He that has seen me has seen the Father. He's quoting Jesus, right? John 10, 38. The Father's in me and I in him. 17, 22. We are one. John 10, 30. I and my Father are one. John 8, 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say we are. I am, right? And that had a specific meaning, right? They picked up the rocks. To, that, that, that really ticked them off. John clearly understood that Jesus is God. And John warns us, don't wander from the truth that you were taught. Don't change the truth of who Jesus is or let go of it, because this truth is what saves you. And there is a seducing spirit at work. So we must abide in Jesus and let abide, Jesus abide in us. Don't be seduced by those who have left the truth. The devil uses false doctrine and false teachers just like he did back then and he does it today to cause believers to stray. The anointing abides in you if you have the Holy Ghost. And John is referring here to people who have left the truth and is warning us not to follow them in the lie that they live with their lives. They live in a lie, but we must live, abide in the truth of Jesus Christ. You, you really want to be living close to Jesus when he returns. Right? You, you, if we abide in him when Jesus comes back, how, we can have confidence, John tells us. We can, and, we, we, and we cannot be ashamed. How do you know if your relationship with God is okay? How do you have confidence in your relationship with God? It's easy. You observe the level of righteousness in your life. I'm moving into John, uh, 1 John 3, verse, verses 1 through 10. I love the first verse. Behold, what manner of love hath the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Right? What amazing, miraculous love God has, has bestowed on us. We, me, who were once children of sin, are now called children of God. 
Hallelujah. That's, a, that's amazing. Because <laughs> I know who I was. Y'all don't know what a scumbag I was. I was. Y'all can laugh. I was. I wasn't a good guy. I looked like a good guy, but I wasn't. And, and this love of God and, and us being children of God, this causes us to separate from our culture. The world doesn't understand Jesus, and it won't understand us. We're the sons of God now, but there's something more waiting for us, and it's better. It's something better. We'll see Him as He is. This is what John's telling us here. We're going to see Him as He is. We'll finally be face-to-face with Him, and we will be like Him, and we'll experience the fullness of our relationship with Him. You know what I mean? You're just getting a taste of it right now. Like, just a little, like, molecule of it. Right now, if you've repented, been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and received the Holy Ghost, you're a child of God. Your spirit is redeemed. Your body is unredeemed. Your body's not redeemed yet. And your, your mind is a battleground between them. But when Jesus returns, we're going to receive glorified bodies and we'll be like Him. There's no more war between the flesh and the spirit. So if we're really living in this hope, this hope will lead us to live in purity and pursue holiness. It will lead us to be ready. So basically here, verse John, in the first verse, John says we are the sons of God. In verse 2, he says well, we shall be like Him. In verse 3, we should be pure and holy. I'm going to jump that part. Real Christians do not live in habitual sin. John is talking here about somebody who is continuously transgressing, somebody that lives in lawlessness. They cannot get into heaven. And he warns that we should beware of those who downplay the importance of God's law. Right? God manifested himself in flesh, and the purpose was to take on the penalty of our sins. A sinner cannot have fellowship with the Holy God, right? That's the crux of the problem. You have the stain of sin on you. You can't be in the presence of the holiness of God. Those two can't mix. The holiness of God is going to win and you're going to die. That's, that's, that's from the beginning, right? But if someone continuously abides in Jesus, they will not continuously commit sin. They might stumble, might make a mistake. I mean, look at Brother Melder. They might sin... <laughs> but when they fall, they refuse to stay there. Look at Brother Melder. They'll sincerely and quickly repent. Christians aren't perfect, they're forgiven. And this is all because of God's peace and His mercy and His grace. People who continuously sin, even though they, they, they might look the part, they might call themselves Christians, they're a fraud and a phony. They might have a good reputation with people, but that's not what really matters. Well, all that really matters is your reputation with God. And He knows what's really going on in your heart. So don't let anybody deceive you. People who continuously live a, a righteous life are the ones who are righteous in God's sight. But the one who commits, continuously commits sin, John says he's of the devil. And Jesus came not only to destroy the power of the devil, He came to destroy the power of the devil over you. And how tragic is it that people have had the, power of de- had the devil's power over them removed only to turn around and keep living like it's still there? That's a tragedy. That should not describe any of us. And the person who's born of God, while you're abiding in God, following the Spirit, it's not possible for you to sin. 
It's when we back off and when we slack off that this devil attacks and tries to regain influence over us. And this is why we not only need good spiritual disciplines, but we need accountability. You need to be accountable to your pastor and to one another. If you're not, right, John, what have we been ta- John, what's John been talking about through here? Telling the truth. Being honest with, 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 with God and with each other. You can't make it if you don't do that. While God's Spirit is controlling you, it is impossible to sin. And you can tell the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil, according to John here, by who continuously does righteousness or who continuously does sin. Apostolics love God's lifestyle of righteousness and they love God's family. Children of God love living righteously and love God's family. Loving one another is the message John heard from Jesus himself and taught from the beginning. Loving one another becomes especially important in times of trouble. Right? The Jews missed this part about loving one another. They kind of had loving God. They, they, they were pretty messed up on it, but they kind of got that part. But they missed this part about loving one another. They weren't real good at it. Moving into 3.11 through 24, Cain, John begins to talk about Cain. He goes all the way back to Cain, very, way back to almost the beginning. Cain killed his brother because he was of the devil. John's gospel tells us that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And anyone who follows him has a murderous spirit influencing them. Both Cain and Abel were worshiping God. Both of them were worshiping God. We don't want to miss that. They were, they were both offering sacrifices to God at an altar, but Cain was a false worshiper. right? Just like many people are today and, and how they were in John's day. Despite his pretense of worshiping God, he looked good, he looked like he was worshiping God, Cain had evil in his heart. That's why he hated Abel's righteousness. And that's why John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Right? Don't marvel if the worldly church people despise you. Ooh. Ouch. Meddling. Remember, John is dealing with false people in his church, the Gnostics. So don't marvel at people who call themselves Christians, people who call themselves apostolics, but live for the world if they hate you. Don't get surprised at that. They're condemned by your righteousness, just like Cain was condemned by Abel's righteousness. There have always been people who think they have some better knowledge and can can turn away from what they've been taught. There's always been people like that, and there always will be. But the way we respond to their hate, if they hate you, okay, John's got some instruction here. Right? The way we respond to the spirit of murder in their hearts is not to hate them back, but to love. We have passed from death unto life. That's a hard instruction, isn't it? Somebody hates you. Where where did John get this? Okay, he got this from Jesus, right? We've passed from death unto life, and that new life causes us to love. It should especially cause us to love the people of God's family. If we have love in our hearts, it should manifest in our lives. If you don't have love for your fellow believers, John, this, like studying this out, kind of froze me right here. Because you read carefully, John says here, you're still dead in your sins. You can love God but not love His people? He says that's impossible. And if you don't love your fellow believers, John says you're still dead in your sins. Right? If you have aught with somebody, you may want to take the instruction on that real serious. 
In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus equated hatred with murder. You don't actually have to do anything to them to be guilty of this sin. It's about the condition of your heart towards them. It's not what you do to them, it's what you would do to them if you could. If you have hatred towards your brother or sister in Christ, you're a murderer. And what John is clearly saying here is that your attitude towards your fellow believers can rob you of your salvation. That, that's a scary thought. <laughs> I don't know about anybody else, but that's a scary thought. I don't like Nathan that much. I love him, though. So the love of God towards us is that Jesus laid his life down for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. We should love each other as much as Jesus Christ has loved us. That's a tall order, isn't it? Yes, it is. The standard to measure our love for each other is God's love for us. It's not, and John points out here, it's not enough just to not do evil towards each other, but to do good. Right? To live for each other. We need to live for each other. Real love costs you something. It shows up in your words and your actions. Real love will inconvenience you. If you're not inconvenienced by loving somebody, you can fill that in the blank. You may want to check that out. John says that if you have the means to meet the need in your brother, but you turn away, how do you think you have the love of God in you? We can't just talk the talk, but we have to walk the walk. John goes further than saying we're sinning it when we hate our brother in our hearts. He now shows that it's sin when we're indifferent. And when the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, right? He was looking for a loophole. Yeah. Just like a lawyer does, right? <laughs> looking for, he wanted to exempt himself from the law of God. But Jesus responded with the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan was somebody Jesus knew the lawyer would have despised in his heart. Somebody he would have felt that he was better than and it was beneath him to help. And this kind of love that John's talking about here is foreign to the world. This kind of love that God showed to us is unmerited favor. So we should do good to everybody we can, but especially so towards the people of God. We ought to love the church family as much as Jesus has loved us. We should be willing to lay down our lives for them. This convicted me reading this and studying this out. Brother Mel, you can correct me later if I'm getting it wrong. But this is the way I'm reading it. It should be noted that we can never cover everyone's needs, okay? That's, that's something that we need to be really careful of. Jesus said we will have the poor with us always. Right? right? Somebody's always going to be poor and somebody's always going to have more. There's always going to be more and less. And we need to be careful we don't go so far that we become overwhelmed and develop com like compassion fatigue. Right? We can start feel, to feel condemned by the idea that we're never giving enough. But John answers this dilemma. He's he saw this, okay? And he said that when we obey God's commandments and when we truly love God's family, not just in word, but by loving in deed, then our hearts have assurance before God because we're doing what He has commanded us to do. We are keeping His commandments, we're loving His family, and we're doing His will. And if we're, that's all true, then we have assurance and that we are not condemned. Hallelujah, that's good. I want to be assured I'm not condemned. And Jeremiah warned that the heart is deceitful above all things. So don't trust that. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the Lord. And we have to understand that the, the diff there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is from the Lord, and it makes you want to draw closer to God and get right with God. Condemnation is from the devil, and it makes you feel like giving up and walking away from God and from his people. So don't trust your feelings. Trust God. Jesus is greater than your feelings. 
And God isn't looking so much at what you're doing or what you're accomplishing as he's looking at the motives in your heart. I don't get too crazy on that. God knows my heart. I've heard all that, but, but read this. John's pretty serious here. You need to be really walking the walk, and you have to have the... He does know what's in your heart. That's to convict you, right? <laughs> like, people have... It's always funny that people say that, and I'm like, yeah, he does. <laughs> like, you may want to just step back, right? Because you're doing wrong. But... You can trust God when you're genuinely serving Him no matter how you feel about it. And this affects, this, John moves into that saying, showing us that this affects our prayer. We need to have confidence, that confidence in Him when we pray that we will receive what we're asking no matter what our feelings try to tell us. Condemnation will cause you to feel unworthy to pray. Is that just me? And we need to put that aside and trust God because He knows the real motives of our hearts. John echoes Jesus' teaching when He taught the greatest commandment. Our belief in God is evidenced when we keep His commandments and when we love others. And we have the power to do both of these things because of the Spirit of God in us. Am I doing okay? Everybody tracking with me? I know it's hot. Everybody wants to fall asleep. Or maybe it's just my talking. Say Mark, 9, Mark 12, 29 through 31. Jesus said that the first of all commandments is that there is only one Lord. And because there is only one Lord, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said there's none other commandment greater than these. So if we really love God, if we really believe in God, we'll keep his commandments. Moving into chapter 4. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. How do we know if we're following the right spirit? You ever thought about that? There are many false prophets in the world. Still today. There were then, there still are. There's a lot of false teachings, false doctrines, and false spirits. And the answer is to try the spirits, to test them, to prove them. We try them against the word of God. The spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Okay, the spirit is that one that, I'm sorry, the spirit confesses Jesus Christ come in the flesh. I'm going to quote Raymond Woodward. He said it like this, the number one test of every teacher, church, or doctrine is what they teach about Jesus Christ. Right? This, it's the first test. It's not the only test, but that's the, So the number one question is, do they believe that Jesus Christ is God? The Gnostics claim, as I said, claim to follow Jesus, but they didn't believe that Jesus was God. John said that the spirit that denies that Jesus is God is that spirit of Antichrist. The word Antichrist, again, means something that is opposed to Christ, or it can mean something instead of Christ. So the spirit that denies that Jesus Christ is fully God is Antichrist. John says to the believers that he calls the little children over and over and over in this letter. Okay, that means new converts. That if you... You have overcome the false teachers and false doctrines because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We love to quote that, right? And while this is a general principle and application, John is specifically addressing the false prophets and the false teachers and the false doctrines and the false spirits and the false believers that he's written about. And he's saying that you can overcome them because Jesus that is in you, the Jesus that is in you is greater than the Antichrist that is in the world. God's spirit, the spirit of truth in you, is greater than the spirit of the lie that's in the world. False spirits, false doctrines, prophets, teachers, they're attractive to the world. The world will reject and ignore teachers and lovers of truth, but people who sincerely seek the truth will find it. 
And you can know if a spirit or a prophet or a doctrine or a teacher is true because they listen to the apostolic doctrine. John is pointing out that our love for the truth necessitates our love for fellow believers. The world is going to reject us because they reject truth. The world will hate us because we love the truth. So we've got to stick together. I'm moving into 4, 7 through 21. I'm, I'm covering bigger chunks here. Um, right, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. Okay, we, so basically he says here, we need to love each other because love, because love com- first of all, love comes from God. He then second says, you're not born of God if you don't love. Third, you don't know God if you don't love. And fourth, God is love. So without love, it is absolutely impossible to have a relationship with God. And John told us in chapter one that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. This speaks to God's holiness. Now, in chapter 4, John's saying that God is love. This speaks to God's kindness. And without the love of God to redeem us, the light of God would destroy us. Y'all follow that? So, what is love? That before we loved God, before we even knew to think about loving God, while we were yet sinners, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the light of God is his truth, his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment on sin. But the love of God is his mercy. The light of God came into contact with the love of God in a perfect harmony at Calvary. This is what a beautiful picture that is, right? The light and the judgment of God came into contact with the love of God perfectly at Calvary. Propitiation, again, means the atoning sacrifice. Jesus paid the price when you couldn't pay it. And so recall that story of the publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee puffed himself up, but the publican confessed his sin and asked God for mercy. Psalm 85 and 10 says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That psalm was fulfilled at Calvary. That's beautiful. God, I feel the Holy Ghost every time I read that. (laughs) If God loved us that much, then surely we ought to be able to love one another. We haven't seen God, but we do see each other. And when we see each other, we see each other with all of our faults. But when we extend the same kind of love and mercy and peace to each other that God has extended to us, then God dwells in us and is perfected or matured in us. We know that God dwells in us because His Spirit of love is operating in us. John reminds us that he didn't just hear about the gospel, but he was there. John was there when Jesus gave that new commandment. John was there when Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say if you fear me, if you feel guilty. if you feel." He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. This is a love relationship. This is not a guilt relationship like some churches would love to teach you. Unlike the false teachers of his and of our time, I would say, John sees no contradiction between loving people and loving doctrine. The people who love doctrine but don't love others, they're legalistic extremists, right? We want to love the truth. We want to love the law. But if all you love is the law but you don't love the people, you're you're off track. You're in the ditch. But the ditch on the other side is is, is if you you have to love 
holy, well, the ditch on the other side is, um, I'm jumping ahead of myself, sorry. John says that when you have the love of God in you, right, people love doctrine, but they don't love others, they're, they're legalistic and they're extremists. But he says when you have the love of God in you, you love his holiness and you love his people, no matter how far they fall short. So we can love the, the law, but we still love people when they fall short of it, right? And that love is not the modern, like the ditch on the other side is what people today call tolerance, right? That's a, anything and everything goes. Everything is accepted. Everything is okay. But we don't, we reject the truth, right? The love John is reminding us of is a love of truth and of people. So the, the, the pathway is down the middle there. They got a kiss, they got to meet in us, not just at Calvary, in us. So we need to be avoid being lovers of truth only and forgetting to love people. We don't want to be legalistic. But we also need to avoid just loving people and failing to love the truth. Or we fall in the ditch. We need to be able to see light versus darkness. We need to be able to see truth and error. And telling the truth is the most loving thing you can do for somebody. The Gnostics refused to believe that Jesus was God incarnate. They were false teachers. John is putting forth a test for fellowship. Remember fellowship? Greater than friendship? He said that we should avoid anyone who denies that Jesus is God come in the flesh. God is love, and dwelling in love reflects dwelling in God. The abiding love of God will change our attitudes and our actions. It will give us boldness and confidence in our relationship with God. We can be confident even on the day of judgment. We don't need to fear the revelation of God and his wrath towards sin. If you have that abiding love of Jesus, you can be like him to others in the world. You can be Jesus to people who have never seen him. When we love God and we love others, when we know that we know that we know God loves us, that banishes fear from our lives. The world and the media and the politicians are continually banging the drum of fear. Have you noticed that? It's all fear, 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 panic, panic, panic. The pandemic was a terrible thing from the health standpoint. But maybe the far worse thing that affected that was that there's a pandemic of fear going on in the world right now. Fear of viruses, fear of vaccines, fear of the government, fear of each other. And the devil loves to fan the flames of fear because if he can get you to be fearful enough, he will isolate you from the people of God and eventually you'll be easy to sway. Right? We were all locked in our houses afraid. Afraid to get together. And the more spiritually mature, the more mature in love we are, the less fear will torment us. And as children of God, we're not supposed to be bound by fear. If you are bound by fear, you need to grow in God. His love, when matured in us, according to John, casts out fear. It is not God's will for us to be filled with worry, anxiety, and fear. John repeats that the commandment of Jesus is to love God and love your neighbor. John repeats that you are a liar if you say you love God but hate your brother. John is repeatedly talking about people being liars. I want to point out something. This is the same man that wrote Revelation. That's why I think he wrote this with Revelation in view. Because John saw where all liars end up. Where do they end up, Brother Melder? In the lake of fire. With the murderers and the whoremongers, right? All. It didn't say some liars. All liars. And the fearful. Yes. So the greatest hypocrisy is to say that you love a God you haven't seen, but fail to love your brother whom you have seen. John 13 and 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Okay, 1 John 
Five. We're moving into that. I'm coming into the close. I, I, I got three minutes, but I can do it. I probably can't. Can I get, can I get five minutes? Can I get a Jeff Arnold five minutes? Yeah. All right. Am I doing good? Am I doing all right? Yeah, it's worth sticking around for because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the home run at the end here. Okay. First John 5, 1 through 5. Whoever, well, it starts off, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The test of every spirit, like we said, every teacher, every prophet and doctrine is what they teach about Jesus Christ. If you love God and Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, then you have to love Jesus. A lot of people say they love God, but they totally reject and ignore the life and teachings of Jesus. If, and John said, John was there when Jesus said, I and my Father are one. He was there. He didn't just hear about it. I'm repeating that. This is a witness. Jesus, then, is not the Son of God eternally. There's no such thing as the eternal Son, is there, Brother Melder? Galatians 4 and 4 says that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. The time was right, and it was chosen by God to manifest Himself in the flesh. There was a time when this Son of God came into being. I didn't say a time when Jesus came into being. I said it was a time when this Son of God, this begotten Son, came into being. Don't get messed up here. Hebrews 1 and 5 says, this day. Indicating that there was a specific planned day. There was a moment in time when God chose to do something He had never done before. He took on a body of flesh. And the phrase God the Son is nowhere in the Bible. The correct term is the Son of God. This is not two different people in the Godhead. It is the one God who, because He loved us, chose to man himself, manifest Himself in the flesh and die on a cross for us. You want to hear more about that? You have to get the recording of Pastor downstairs. I know he's teaching on that tonight. He's probably doing a better job of explaining it. But the physical body of Jesus left this world 2,000 years ago. But He still has a body here on earth. And that body is the church. That's us. Yes. Colossians 2.9 says that Jesus contained all the fullness of the Godhead. So we don't just love some nebulous idea, some vague concept of God. We love Jesus, who was God in a body of the flesh. And we love His church, which is His body on earth today. Amen? Is this tracking? Is it plugging together? John looked around and he saw there were a lot of false teachers and a lot of false believers. They say they love God, but they, and they say they love Jesus. They say they love the church. They say they are filled with love, but it's not genuine. They're like Cain. So John repeats again that if we love God, we keep His commandments. It's not a burden on us to do this either. We keep His commandments because we love Him. It's not a... My wife's birthday tomorrow. I got her something for her birthday. It wasn't a burden for me to do that. I do that because I love her. Jesus said, <laughs> your mom doesn't love you. All right. No. <laughs> but, okay. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things I say? The word keep in this verse, okay, the word keep, keep his commandment, doesn't just mean obedience. But keep also means to guard, to preserve, or to protect. God's commandments are blessings. They're not burdens. They're not a list of rules that we have to check off and make sure we're okay. If, as we mature spiritually, we move from I have to keep His commandments to I want to keep His commandments to I get to keep His commandments. 
And what a joy and privilege it is to have the Word of God guiding and guarding our lives. We should therefore keep, preserve, protect, guard the Word of God because it keeps the evil of this world out of our lives. And anybody who's been born again, born of God, will continually overcome the world. Overcometh in the King James, right? F is a suffix that means it's something being done continually. The blessing of obedience is that when you, according to John here, is that when you keep his commandments, you overcome the world. So his commandments aren't grievous or burdensome because they lead us to overcome the sin of this world. It's our path to victory. It's not a burden. John does not say, and in fact, he refutes totally the idea that all you need to do is believe. Faith always turns belief into action. The evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ is that we lead an overcoming life. All right, I'm coming down the home stretch here. 6 through 12. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Okay, as John comes towards the close of his letter, he shifts his focus. And this is really important. This is why I didn't want to cut it out. So I apologize, I'm going a little long. But this is, this is so good. It was worth sticking around for. Okay, Jesus did not come by water only, but by water and blood. John also introduces the concept of spirit here. Right? This is the first time he mentions really in the letter. John has very, very lightly witnessed, as we said, the baptism of Jesus. Right? That's water. And he witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, right? That's blood. And these were the beginning and end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the Spirit gave witness at both events, right? It descended on him at baptism. And by the Spirit, the earth shook. The veil was rent, right? All this stuff happened, right? At his death. And the Spirit was bearing witness because the Spirit was truth. And it was the Spirit that raised up the body of Jesus from the dead. Romans 8 and 11 says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So now we get to have that same Spirit in us. It was the Spirit that bore witness that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. Amen. And there are three that bear witness in heaven, John says. These are one. There are three that bear witness in earth. These are one, not one, but they agree meaning they work together for a purpose. Okay, so we said John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14 confirm that Jesus is the Word. God is our Father in creation. He took on flesh and became the Son in redemption. Now, He is the Spirit that fills the believer and gives us the power to live for Him. These three terms just describe three ways that God is related to humanity. Right, And this was His plan from the beginning. They don't get confused that John's somehow talking to a trinity. I don't have time to go into it, but pagan religions have always had trinities. All these pagan religions, the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, uh, they all had tr- others. They all had the Hindus. They all had trinities of God. Even Israel, when they backslid, worshipped a trinity. They worshipped Moloch, Baal, and Ashdod. Okay? This is an antichrist spirit all over the place. And this was creeping into the church forever. John knew this false teaching of the world was trying to make its way into the church then. And when John says these three are one, he's focusing on the one, not the three. He's referring to the same scripture in Deuteronomy 6 that Jesus quoted in Mark 12, 29, when the scribes asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So John says these three bear witness. Bear witness of what? 
They bear witness that Jesus is God. He is God in creation. He was God when He walked the earth. He was God at Calvary. He was God when He poured out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And He is still God today. There is one God and His name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. There, are three, there are three here on earth. But, and they are not one, but they work together. Blood, water, and spirit. You can find these three several places in the scripture. The story of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, for example. They put blood on the doorposts so the angel of the Passover couldn't touch them. They were delivered through the waters of the Red Sea. And then they were led by the pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness, right? The supernatural spirit. And we see it again in the tabernacle. Those pieces of furniture that directly related to atonement for sin, they reflect these three. The brazen altar, place where blood was shed. The brazen labor, where the priest was washed by the water. And the Ark of the Covenant, where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. John reminds his readers that death equals blood, blood, <coughs> burial equals water, and resurrection equals spirit. Acts 2.38, repent, baptism, Holy Ghost, right? Blood, water, spirit, death, burial, resurrection. The witness of God is greater than the witness of man. You can receive God's witness in yourself, and the witness is the Holy Ghost. If we believe in Jesus, we can receive his witness. But if you refuse to believe the record of the scriptures that Jesus is God, you make yourself a liar. You don't make God a liar, you make yourself a liar. And the testimony of the scriptures is that if you have Jesus, you have life. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. Okay, 13 through 15, eternal life is found only in the name of Jesus. John 20, 30 through 31, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Jesus alone. John has shown several times how we can know that we know that we know Jesus. To be confident we know him, we submit to his commandments. To be confident he will hear and answer our prayers, we submit to his will. We know his will by knowing his word. 5 and 16, it reminds us we can't just talk the talk, we must walk the walk. And we need not just watch out for ourselves, but we have to watch out for each other. We need to pray for a brother that's sinning. John speaks of a sin not unto death. Okay, that's an accidental sin that's quickly repented of. It, it, uh, it's a sin, uh, leading to, a sin leading to death is a willful sin, something that remains unrepented of. I, I want to get this through, through this because I don't want you to get confused. I want you to get the whole lesson. It, it's, it's, the, it's something that remains unrepentant. It's a sin unrepented of in the life of an apostate, somebody that fell away. It's someone who has walked away from the truth and is willfully doing the things that they know the Word of God tells them not to. That is sin leading to death. Someone who has renounced the oneness of God, rejected his commandments, and rejected his people. John is saying that praying for an apostate is going to have very little effect. He's not saying we shouldn't pray for them, but he's saying you might not want to waste a whole lot of time on that. Because they're willfully rejecting. What he's saying, we'd be better off praying for those who know they're stumbling and who have, we're better off praying for them than those who have willfully walked away. So, 518, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Okay, again, F means continuously. Genuine Christians may stumble, fall, and they may sin, but they do not live in habitual sin. They continually keep themselves from wickedness. The world continuously gives themselves to wickedness. The person born of God keeps himself constantly on guard. The good news is that if you keep his commandments, the devil can't touch you. He can't mess with you. He can't affect you. 
So Jesus is the true God and the way, only way to eternal life. That's what John, I'm summarizing 520. And then 521, John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, amen. Kind of a curious close. All of a sudden he throws this one specific instruction, right? Where, where, where we get to idols. But it's not that curious. The first of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have any gods before me. Right? You keep those, you don't really have to worry about the rest of them. Right? You, get, you get that right, you won't, you won't worship. An idol is anything that you prioritize over God. So we need to, more than ever, to guard our minds and what we give our attention to. More than ever. I heard it the other, uh, uh, I think I shared it with you, Brother Melder, uh, a, a, a sermon on, on altars. And we don't, you know, what, what, what's our, you have to kill what's precious to you. Well, what's precious to us in this day and age? Our time. Man, I was convicted. Right? What are we giving our time to? And, and everything at us right now, the internet, all this stuff, it's, it's working at home. Whoa, it's a great blessing. No, because you get emails at midnight. Okay? The truth is... And we have to be careful. We have to guard about the truth because the truth is constantly being twisted and attacked. So in conclusion, the believer's life, to walk the path of an overcoming life, we need to love God's word and keep his commandments and we need to love God's people. If we love truth but don't love people, again, that's legalism and we make ourselves a liar. If we love people, but we don't love and honor God's word, that's tolerance. And again, we make ourselves a liar. And all liars end up in the lake of fire. I guess another title for this could be Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. But <laughs> Truth and love collided perfectly at Calvary. And when we get these in equal balance in our lives, we obtain that perfect love that gives us assurance and casts out fear. So love God's word. Love God's people. Keep his commandments. Care for one another and be truthful. Be true to God. Be true to yourself. Be true to others.